Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Robbie Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Uh, We are joined again by Grace. Uh, That sounds funny. By Grace Lynch. (laughs) We are are blessed by Grace. (laughs) Hi, Grace. Hi. Thanks for having me. Uh, Happy New Year to everybody. Ravi, you're back from your second home in Costa Rica. Yes, officially. Yeah. You know, I'm reminded of how cold it is in New York City. I've been spoiled the past few years and missing most of the winters. And it's uh, it's character building out there. <laughs> it's that terrible. kind of weather. It's I rough. just got back to Kansas City from Miami and it's like, what is this about? Why are we doing this? I, on the flip side, was visiting my family in uh, on Vashon Island in Washington State. And we got hit by a huge snowstorm, which never happens out there. And so I actually left like every day high of 26 or 28 degrees to come to a balmy 45 in New York. So I actually got off the plane and started taking off layers. So I've had the opposite experience. All right. Well, see, I would rather still have my experience. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) All right. What's going on? While we were out, Omicron continued to rage. And, you know, at this point, cases are up in, you know, the 14-day average, cases are up 254%. Hospitalizations are up 51%. But interestingly, deaths are down 3%. What do we know about this variant and what does it mean for this new year, 2022? I think that what we're seeing, which like feels a bit counterintuitive, is exactly what you pointed out, Robbie, this idea of cases being so up but deaths being so down. And what I think is somewhat comforting is that it looks like coronavirus is behaving like a virus should and that it wants to be contagious because it wants to live. But if it's too deadly, then it runs out of hosts. So we're seeing the virus do what viruses do, which is usually slowly wane over time in terms of their deathliness, which is great. However, I think that that number is also a bit misleading because if you have twice as many infections, but only half as many people going to the hospital, for instance, like you still have the exact same number of people ultimately going to the hospital because the infectious pool is so much larger with this variant. So I think that while currently deaths are down and we can be very grateful for that, I think the thing we need to be watching out for is how full our hospitals are getting and really the toll that this is taking on healthcare workers is more so I think our next big our big problem with this variant. Yeah, my mom just had a surgery rescheduled and I'm not saying like, oh my God, it's a horrible tale of woe. It's just like it clearly has effects on things. Uh, other than um, just these raw numbers that that we look at. So uh, hospitals are getting overwhelmed and not overwhelmed. Overwhelmed is a term that actually means something in this pandemic that we shouldn't use loosely. They're getting to the point where you have to reschedule surgeries and that kind of thing. But here's my question. Like, isn't it still like 
of the deaths and of the majority of the hospital hospitalizations, it's still mostly the unvaccinated population, certainly with the deaths. With I would say with the deaths, but less so with the actually infected. I feel like that we're realizing that, you know, a booster shot gives you the best chance possible of having very mild symptoms. And that is, in fact, the vaccine working, but that the vaccinated population is still definitely contracting Omicron. They're just not being more than usually a little sick for a few days. Yeah, but not, not going to the hospital. Correct. Right. Not going to the hospital. I think that underscores that as this pandemic evolves, we need to evolve in the in the statistics that we used to track it. So I, I actually think at this point, cases are so much less important than hospitalizations and deaths. And we probably should be talking more and more about just those statistics and also even the sense of what even immunity is, which we've been talking about antibody immunity as the sole metric about, you know, how protected you are against the virus. But one thing I think we've learned over the past few weeks is that there are multiple mechanisms of immunity. And one of them is the antibody immunity. And then but you also have T cell immunity. And actually what we've learned from Omicron is that we've learned a lot more about T cell immunity and Derek Thompson from the Atlantic had a good metaphor, which is saying, if you think of if our COVID immunity as a castle, the moat is the antibody immunity, meaning that's what prevents, you know, the enforce the, the invaders from even coming in in the first place. But then you have the T cells, which fight it off once it gets there. Those are the knights. We realized through Omicron that maybe the vaccine has a, uh, a less durable moat than we thought, but the knights seem to be holding up pretty well. Okay, so then that brings us to like the politics of this, which, Robbie, you sent us this, the Ben Shapiro tweet thread. Shall we run through that? So Ben Shapiro a few days ago, and I'm seeing this narrative all over the right, essentially being like, oh, now you're saying, and then you know Ben Shapiro is basically saying, we now, now we're hearing from members of the media establishment and the left that blank, and then he gives this long list of certain concessions as he sees them that the left is making. And, you know, some of these things he lists are cloth masks are ineffective, vaccinated people can spread and get COVID, the death rate is comparable to the flu, many people are entering hospitals with COVID, not, you know, whatever, like, but basically he lists a bunch of things. And and I know people are hearing this saying like, oh, now everybody's acknowledging all these things we've been saying on the right. And I would just say that what Ben Shapiro fails to acknowledge is that a lot of the things he mentions are the facts changing, not the opinions changing, right? Exactly. Like, well, you take, for example, that the vaccinated can get and spread COVID. That has always been true, but the fact that the vaccinated could get and spread COVID more with Omicron than Delta is not because we were wrong about Delta. It's because Omicron is is different and the virus evolves. So our opinions on the virus evolve. The problem with this tweet thread and with the argument overall is just like, aha, look, we were right all mm -hmm. along. This has always been the case. But this is all new information. And this is all a new reality as of like truly a couple of weeks. And so they're playing, you know, retroactive. I told you from the very beginning, even though when they were saying all these things, they were inaccurate based on the facts yeah. at the time. And now they are closer to the truth. And if Omicron had been the only variant of COVID we would have ever encountered, probably this whole pandemic would have felt and looked very, very different. And those early speculations of it's basically the flu would have been closer to true than they were with the original variant and certainly with Delta, which was quite severe and continues to be prevalent in the U.S. So it's it's a real like I think a um, like hijinks of trying to make us forget that this has not in any way always been the case. 
My favorite in here, I think, is number six, where he says, we have to take into account societal needs, not just spread prevention, which is funny because like one, I don't agree that societal needs have never been taken into account given that like there was one side, ours, that was like, we should give people money during this. And the other side that was like, no, 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 we should just let people die. <laughs> like, I, I mean, like, I kind of feel like we were on the side of societal needs on that one and on the side of spreading uh, prevention. Um, but the other thing that gets me about this is like, to your point, Grace, like, well, yeah, we're like a couple years into this now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And there's another point that he makes in here about like children are not at risk and schools should remain open. And I think that we've all talked extensively about the benefits of schools staying open. But adding in that children aren't at risk here when more kids are getting infected with Omicron than any other variant prior and more kids are going to the hospital than ever before. And a lot of that's due to the fact that kids aren't el- many kids aren't eligible for vaccinations or at least were very recently made eligible is like also just like wildly misleading and inaccurate. And there's a lot of families who are extremely stressed and suffering who have small children and are still trying to navigate this. And I'll just that part read extremely tone deaf to me. One one thing I want to give him credit for is how gracious he is at the end for inviting people <laughs> into his opinions, because he does say and I want to give him credit for this. He does say and fuck y'all for pretending you didn't know this so that you could have fun crapping on Trump and DeSantis and all your red state relatives. And so it's it really feels like he's in the project of persuading people here. Like he seems really and he seems to be really gracious and welcoming of, of people to his perspectives as he sees it. Can I say something about that, though, is like emotionally like we've talked about this, like the effect, we got to talk about the effectiveness of things and like living where I live and seeing, you know, I see on social media, the way people talk about, you know, masking up and everything, you know, in other places. And I, you know, I sense the judgment, like, and I, yeah. I sense all that stuff. And I guess I'm just saying like, we shouldn't pretend nothing has changed in this pandemic and we shouldn't continue to virtue signal all the time using masks in pictures and that kind of thing. But he's reacting to it such a small sliver of the Democratic coalition that exists anymore. Like if you go down this list, anybody who's a longtime listener of this podcast knows, like, for example, even you and I for a long time have have changed our perspectives on a lot of the things that he has listened. And it wasn't yesterday that we changed our, you know, the school thing, for example. We've been talking about this forever. And I've been pro school reopening for a long time, you know, and like as if this was a thing that people like just stumbled upon yesterday. But but it presents as a larger group, and I'll tell you why. It's because, and I I assume we've all, of the three of us, I assume this has happened for each of us. I know it's happened for me multiple times. I've been at events where it's like a, you know, uh, show your vaccine card, come in, and then they go to take pictures, and people are like, put your masks on for the picture. And I'm just like, "Are are you kidding me? Like, I'm like, this is the problem. Like, this is what he's talking about. So I guess that's really what I'm saying is like, yeah, look, it's okay. If you're two vaccinated people and you want to hang out together, like, hang out together. And and if you're going to take a picture, like, don't pretend that you were, like, it's ridiculous. And and I see it like with elected officials all the time. I, I, I saw a thing uh, today where it was Michelle Obama and I can't, I can't remember who the other person was. And they're wearing, they're like hanging out together and they're wearing like full face shields. And I saw it and I, and I love Michelle Obama. And I thought, there's no way before the camera turned on that you all were hanging out in full face shields. Like you're both vaccinated. They're good friends. Like, and that's the kind of stuff that I think plays right into this. I think so too. But what I think that Ben Shapiro is doing that's so effective is that he is kind of weaponizing this thing that the GOP does all the time, which is talking about individual respect. 
and really playing to this idea of like people don't respect you. And he's making COVID and any sort of precautions warranted or not that could have been used for public safety as a way to show that people don't respect you, which is antiquated and misguided and incredibly baked in toxic masculinity to the point it makes me scream. But it's infuriatingly effective. Yeah. Yeah. No, very well said. Well, I think there's one last point on this, which is there's this sense that that there's only one reason why people can change their opinions on something or change their actions or recommendations is because they're hypocrites and like it's it's out of some kind of political calculation whereas like the public health experts could change their opinions because they've just learned something new they could change their opinions because certain resources became available they could change their opinions because they were persuaded of something that they may have been wrong about and that could be true of politicians and they could change their opinions because as with omicron the virus evolved and I think there's this this cartoon version of the universe that he lives in. But you were you were talking about performative masks wearing, and I think it's we should probably talk about uh, the congresswoman from New York City, uh, AOC, who was hanging out with you down in, in or near you yeah. in the same city as you, Jason, in Miami, and, and caught a lot of flack for that. The right wing uh, were circulating photos of her sitting outside with her boyfriend and then uh, also I think dancing maskless at a party you know DeSantis even weighed in and, and talked about the hypocrites hypocritical liberal politicians who, who love to come to Florida because they can enjoy the freedom but then restrict their own populations what do we make of all this to me it's like I get what they're trying to do like no matter what she does like if she gets up in the morning they're like oh you're a you're a hypocrite because you've said that sleep is important I mean it doesn't yes. matter <laughs> but uh but putting her aside, like, I'll just say as a what the, whatever the hell I am, uh, a re- recovering politician who went to Florida, I didn't go for the freedom. I went because it's really fucking beautiful there and it's warm. And I'm pretty sure that that's why she went and everybody else went. And if if the people of Florida really think that it is freedom that is causing their tourism, they're going to make some very poor uh, like strategic <laughs> choices because it's the weather, man. Like. <laughs> Well, look, New Hampshire's pretty free, and I ain't going there anytime soon until <laughs> exactly. it gets warm. You know. Yeah. Grace, decode this for us. Give give us some wisdom on 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 this. The facts on the ground have changed, and so people's reactions, responses, and actions have changed. AOC didn't go clubbing in Miami at the height of Delta. She didn't go clubbing in Miami during our first lockdown when when most everyone shut down in March, and DeSantis said, "Hell no." You know, like she's doing that now at a time when the risk assessment is very different, and it's very different for most people. And the fact that our politics doesn't allow us to progress or change with the addition of any new information is incredibly infuriating and is only then allows those like Ben Shapiro's to pile on as if everything has always been the same and you failed this purity test. I like how she just leaned into it. Her reply was, she's like, yeah, maybe while I'm here, we'll do some organizing. Like, <laughs> um, but <laughs> Ravi, you had mentioned wanting to talk about, and I think you're right, Jared Polis, governor of Colorado and the new mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, and their approach to COVID policy and lockdowns and that kind of thing seems to be uh, maybe like more modern and up to date. Yeah. And I think, you know, what I like about what Eric is doing and what Jared Polis is doing and, and so many other Democratic politicians around the country is they're signaling in a whole different way. They're signaling to that brewery owner in Pennsylvania and saying, look, I hear you and I'm giving you I'm giving you the emotional 
comfort to say you have somebody in an office who understands how dire your situation is. And I think people needed to hear that in New York. I think it's really helpful to say, you know, because I've never been a fan of de Blasio and there are a million different problems with him. But one of the biggest problems was he was living week to week in a way that was understandable. But at a certain point in the pandemic, I think smart politicians realized and and public leaders realized we need to give people some sense of long-term perspective about where we're going with this because they need to plan their lives. I need to hear more definitive statements from politicians, even though the, the virus is dynamic. And I know that's a super hard thing to do, which is why politics is hard and why like a lot of these offices are highly coveted. But I think it's the right move. You know, obviously, like if this pandemic turns way, way, way more deadly, they may have to go back on their promises. But I think what they're saying is like, look, like people are fed up and they need to hear they need to hear from us on this. If you've ever wanted to make your home feel safer, there's no better time than now. Right now, our friends at Simply Safe are giving Majority 54 listeners access to all their New Year's holiday deals, 20% off their award-winning home security, and your first month is free when you sign up for the interactive monitoring service. I can just say as somebody who, you know, just went on vacation and just got back, it feels good and secure and it's comforting to know that uh, Simply Safe is looking after things uh, at home while you're gone. We love Simply Safe because it has everything you need to make your home safe. Indoor and outdoor cameras, comprehensive sensors, all monitored around the clock by trained professionals who send help the instant you need it. And Simply Safe has been named the best home security system of 2021 by a US News and World Report. And you can easily customize the system for your home online in minutes and even get free custom recommendations. So hurry, take 20% off your Simply Safe system, and your first month is free when you sign up for the interactive monitoring service. You can visit simplysafe.com slash majority54. Again, that's simplysafe.com slash majority54 for 20% off your entire system. If you've been listening to this show for a while, you probably have heard us talk about our Helix mattresses. I mean, clearly you have. But Helix has left the bedroom and started making sofas. They just launched a new company called Allform, and they're already making the best sofas that we've ever seen. Again, I just came back from my vacation, which means not only was I missing my Helix mattress, but I was also missing the Allform sofa and the sort of little routine that has developed around it. Yes, yeah, same, Jason. This. I've got an Allform chair and ottoman in my office and the same in my apartment, and I I think what makes them really cool is that they're easy to customize using premium materials and at a fraction of the cost of traditional stores. They've got armchairs, love seats, all the way up to an eight-seat sectional, although you could always start small and buy more seats later on if you want your all-form sofa to grow and change with you when you move. All-form sofas are delivered directly to your home with fast, free shipping, and I can tell you these things are so easy to put together. It's a breath of fresh air when you get it. It takes no time whatsoever to get them ready and set up. To find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com slash majority54. And Allform is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners at allform.com slash majority54. Well, it's one year from January 6th. Obviously, a lot has changed and, and unfortunately a lot hasn't changed since then. The New York Times had an op-ed that basically said every day now is January 6th. You know, help distill that for our audience. What what do they mean by that? Before I distill that, I I just want to say, like, I'm trying to think of where I thought we would be one year ago now. You know what I mean? Like, like where, how I thought we would think about this. And I remember when we all did an emergency pod about it, uh, we were obviously really distraught. And then in the days that followed, like, it seemed like 
well, heck, that day, like Mitch McConnell seemed distraught and Lindsey Graham seemed distraught. And like, uh, you know, like everything else, so many of those clowns have just gone back into their hole and said, please, Mr. Trump and others, stop hitting me. And it's like, that's why I think it feels like January 6th every day. I think for me, at the time, I saw something horrifying, unprecedented, scary. And I thought it was over when we were speaking and that fallout would come. And even though people who played individual participatory roles on the day have seen some consequences, there really hasn't been accountability for those who planned, stoked, and implemented the broader hope of disrupting and overturning a free and fair election. So to me, I think where it's January 6th every day, because in my opinion, the insurrection succeeded. It didn't succeed in terms of like stopping that electoral count on that day. The guy with the yak horns isn't still sitting in Congress on the chamber floor or whatever, but they succeeded in that we have a majority of Republicans, an overwhelming majority, believe that that Biden did not win this election. And a minority, but a substantial portion who are okay with violence being used to rectify what they believe is a false electoral victory. And that's, those are current numbers. <laughs> that's like a recent CNN poll. So I think it was victorious. And I didn't expect that to be the case one year later. That's a really good point is that you know, we have a tendency to focus on when we're talking about Build Back Better or the filibuster or anything else. We have a tendency to focus on the 50 Democratic senators. And we've talked a lot about that, that, you know, there ought to also be a focus on the fact that none of the Republicans will go along on any of this stuff. But, you know, part of the reason why is because of the success of delegitimizing the government. If, you, if the government doesn't have legitimacy, then it doesn't have any capacity to govern. And it, and if 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 you have a legitimate like a government that you disagree with that you consider legitimate, well, then it becomes a lot more possible politically for GOP senators and GOP members of, of Congress in general to side with an administration of an opposite party. But if if they're not like, like Biden's not even, you wouldn't consider him unpopular. Uh, even if you consider him unpopular, he's not unpopular at the level where like, it should make sense that uh, members of the opposite party should be afraid to work with him and get bipartisan points. The reason that they are is because he's not even considered to be president by most of their party. And so that's the reason that they can't get anything done because like doing that would mean that you have to break with your party by admitting the guy is president. That's crazy. I think I'm being honest, I would consider him unpopular, maybe not deeply unpopular, but you know, when you start getting into low forties, that's tough. But this whole scenario reminds me of my favorite novel is this book called The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. And early in that book, there's this scene where this, you know, wise old magician tells this guy named Joseph Cavalier, he says, reserve your anxieties for what you're escaping to, not what you're escaping from. And I think about that from January 6th, which was that was the moment where I had that thought, which is. I've had so much anxiety about the election and the Trump years and all of that. And that was probably the first day to me that I realized that what comes after this could be worse, even with a victory. And I think over the course of the past year, I've only become more 
I, I think that that belief has only strengthened, and I think in part because of this, just January six being every day. It, there's a technical thing going on here, which is they're electing people to offices that we've talked about all around the country, election offices, you know, from secretary of states to election boards, but also for the electoral college, members of Congress believing this stuff is dangerous as anything else, because they're ultimately the kind of people who can override an election result. So I think they're, per Grace, your point, they're winning. And, you know, yeah, the guy with the horns probably, you know, losing, (laughs) but the overall project is winning. Trump is winning. And I, I, the kind of scenarios that we should be entertaining moving forward are getting more and more dramatic. This is no different than like nobody, nobody went to jail really for, for the economic collapse, but a lot of people suffered and the people who suffered and who lost jobs, none of them were the people who, who engineered it or who got certain, hell, those people got bonuses and that kind of thing. So this is just like that, except, you know, it's the entire future of the democracy. And, and that's why like we can put aside for a second i think we can everybody listening to this is for the most part pretty frustrated with inaction by the senate uh, you know because of filibuster and the lack of filibuster reform and that kind of thing put that aside for a minute one thing we've not really talked about on this show much is the potential prosecution of trump and of some of the other uh planners i know that the the january 6th commission is looking into it and and they from all reports seem to be very diligent about it but there's a clock on that because we're going to get a new congress likely at some point here in the next year so there's a clock that runs there and then second like we've got an attorney general and we've got a justice department and everybody is sitting around going it seems and going well i mean is that the right move to prosecute yeah i don't care that he was president i don't care that that may be a bad look on the world like they attempted a coup if they broke the law and you have any evidence of it, you got to prosecute them, period. Like that, there's just no way around it. Like the rest of the world saw an attempted coup. And to think that the rest of the world is going to think we're some kind of banana republic because we prosecute people who are in elected office misses the point that they're going to think we're some kind of banana republic because we don't prosecute people who are involved in a coup because they were in elected office. That's that's what you do when only only power matters. Clarifying question on that. How does it work when you're president? Like, does he get immunity from suits when it comes to that? I don't know how this works. He, once you're out of office, to my understanding, once you're out of office, like your immunity is gone. And also, I think even in office, there's an argument to be made that you don't get immunity from that, from like trying to attempt a coup, you know? How insulated the president is, is a matter of legal debate where some scholars think that if it creates a distraction for the president, then it is like dubious to pursue that sort of legal avenue. That's partially why the Mueller investigation kind of like didn't suggest any sort of prosecution because whether or not a sitting president could be indicted was a matter of debate in the Justice Department. But to your point- the one the one person who hasn't been to law school on here finally explaining this to us. No, but the, 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 the mechanism there would have been impeachment though. That's what I'm asking. Like is like- is the only route to to prosecute Trump for things he did as president in his capacity as president, which I guess is the debate, was this in his capacity as president, is that is the only avenue impeachment again? If you commit a crime, yes, one of the remedies is impeachment and removal from office. But I don't but there's a reason that after Nixon resigned that Ford chose to pardon, pardon him. him. Oh, good yeah. point. Because That's a I good think, analogy. I think that yeah. the debate is that whether impeachment is certainly the avenue that is available to Congress that doesn't involve a criminal charge. 
And so mm-hmm. once you are out of office, though, then the criminal charge can easily be applied. It's just whether or not that criminal charge could be applied while you hold the office of the presidency, I think, is yeah, what okay. that debate is. Well, thanks for the, the constitutional law explanation, Grace. <laughs> Anytime. It, it's part of why he was so desperate to hang on to mm-hmm. the office, and it's part of why he's so desperate to get back in the office, because he he covets that immunity from prosecution. And I I think he doesn't have it right now, and that's why he should be prosecuted, because he, he did crimes. Yeah, he's like our Berlusconi. You know, Berlusconi kept running for office to maintain his immunity. Uh, unfortunately, he, he kept that, that one going for a while. Well, you know, one prominent voice one of the only prominent voices in elected office and on the right, Liz Cheney, has been barnstorming the media talking about January 6th and the larger threat from Trump. Some of the things she has said are alarming. The Republican Party has to make a choice. We can either be loyal to our Constitution or loyal to Donald Trump, but we cannot be both. But I think it's also important for the American people to understand how dangerous Donald Trump was. Uh, We know as he was sitting there in the dining room next to the Oval Office, uh, members of his staff were pleading with him to go on television to tell people to stop. We know Leader McCarthy uh, was pleading with him to do that. We know members of his family. We know his daughter. We have firsthand testimony. Uh, Any man who would not do so, any man who would provoke a violent assault on the Capitol to stop the counting of electoral votes, any man who would watch television as police officers were being beaten, uh, as as his supporters were invading the capital of the United States, is clearly unfit for future office, uh, clearly can never be anywhere near the Oval Office uh, ever again. Hillary Clinton said a couple of weeks ago that if he runs and wins, that could be the end of our democracy. Do you share that fear? I do. This is not David Sirota or Michael Moore. This is Liz Cheney saying this. It should be a big deal. You know, if she says this could be the end of the democracy, what do we do with that? I know a lot of our listeners, like, uh, we try to tell our listeners, only focus on things that you can control. But I think if I'm anything like our listeners, I spend an inordinate amount of my, t- amount of my time just worrying about this larger threat to our democracy without a clear plan about how to do anything about it. Well, to me, it's it's why you should get involved in Secretary of State's races. It's why you should get involved in, in races for local election authority, whether it's county clerk or recorder or auditor or whatever it is where you live. Like... That's the front line right now. Like that that's where you should spend a lot of your time. I think that that is the actionable thing to do. Because what to me is the like more existential breakdown is what I referenced earlier that a majority of Republicans believe Biden didn't actually win this election. That I remember us on this show once saying, like, if I really thought all this stuff was going on, I'd be in the streets. I'd be so angry. And it's like, right, that is right before January 6th. Truly. Right and that is exactly yeah. what happened because they do really believe it. And so I think there is a point of empathy there to see an earnest belief. There's plenty of critique to have as to why that belief is held. But I think that there is a media accountability that to me, like this issue will r- repeat itself so long as Tucker Carlson is on air. So long as Sean Hannity is on air, so long as Laura Ingram's on air, repeating these lies and creating the reality that allows people to say that Liz Cheney is a hack, you know, and not a real Republican. Well, and let me just say, part of that is if any of those people were involved in planning this, they should be in prison. 
Like that's like because you're not going to just convince Fox to stop putting people on or or you know anybody else who's who's propagating this stuff and getting clicks and listens and everything else because of it. But what will scare people is, hey, if you purposefully put out disinformation that led to this, you are going to be prosecuted. That will dissuade people because like as these texts come out, like. Like this guy Navarro that was on talking about the Green Bay sweep or whatever the hell, like, like clearly he should be prosecuted. Like, like he tried to, he, he, he tried to, he's like one of the architects of the coup. He went on TV and bragged about it. Right. Like they need to see that, like, if you brag about being part of a coup, you go to jail. Like that's what's got to happen. It's the only thing that's going to dissuade these people. Yeah. I think that the harder part though, is like how downstream somebody is you know, like Hannity, for example, based on everything I've seen available, he broke no laws. Yeah, probably least, not, so, but yeah. but it's worth looking into, don't you think? That's my point. Like, I know I sound like a crazy person, but I think the only people, <laughs> the only people who aren't crazy now are the people who sound like crazy people. And and so, like, on in terms of actually taking this serious, like, that's my thing is it's just like, like, if after 9-11, we were like, well, you know, look, we don't, we don't actually want to make Al-Qaeda mad. Right. So we're not going to go back to like, no, like somebody tried to destroy our democracy, a bunch of people. That's against the law. Like we don't have to pass a new law. It's been against the law since the start. So we should probably enforce that law. I don't care who they are. And I I will say that I do see a kind of concern on the left about talking about January 6th already in the sense of like, it's divisive. People don't see eye to eye. We're not trying to sound like we're on a witch hunt to get everyone who's ever, you know, been a conservative or been pro-Trump. And I really struggle with that perspective because I think it just lends so much credence and gives so much room for the right to then, you know, elbows out and say, you're right. This was not that big of a deal. There was Antifa there, whatever their lie of the moment is, or even it was justified. We shouldn't even have to talk about it politically because the Justice Department should be doing its job. Like the Justice Department should be out there following the evidence and prosecuting people so that there's no there's no reason to the only reason to talk about it is to get them to do their job. And they are they are, to be clear, like they're prosecuting tons they're of people. It's prosecuting one of the- a lot of people, but like I, I wanna see people who planned it prosecuted. Yeah. That's what I well, wanna see. I think one thing that we're dealing with right now in this country, and this is true of the left, like uh, David Packer had an article in The Atlantic, and they had a whole issue devoted to January 6th. And essentially, he looks at polling about, you know, the relative alarm about anti-democratic tendencies. Uh, and shockingly, more Republicans are concerned about anti-democratic tendencies on the left than people on the left are concerned about the right. And Because you know, Packer for them, makes- the election was actually stolen. Right. It makes sense. Basically, Packers like both sides are suffering from a little bit of fantastical thinking on the left. We're denying the reality that our democracy is in peril. On the other side, the belief itself is the peril. (laughs) So it's like an unbelievable mindfuck. And I think part of what's going on is that there's a failure of imagination. When I talk to people about this, including Democrats, they have this survivorship bias. Things have always been bad. Things like we did a civil war, whatever. But civilizations come to an end at some point. You know, we are not guaranteed any more, many more days like this. And I think what's staring us in, in our face is a very, very high likelihood of either a civil war or a um, a full-on coup that 
you know, it's kind of a slow motion coup that people's apathy, I think the right counts on people's apathy being like the the gasoline that fuels their rise where people are like, oh, it's just one secretary of state office or, you know, or I don't watch the news because it makes me unhappy or whatever. And like with each passing day when this shit goes on, they win. And I think it's it's happening right before our eyes. Absolutely. Like, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but like, you know, I, I was willing to give my life for this country. And now I'm like, you know, if democracy doesn't continue, what what does that all mean? And, and it's like, I think a lot of people feel that way. And yes. So, yeah, when people are like, oh, I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm like, no, you it by who? Who's going to make it fine? Like, yeah, that's to me, like the hesitancy on the left to prosecute people who plan this is like, man, if if there was a bank robbery and it was conducted by bank robbers, but you knew that there was somebody who like told the bank robbers what time the bank was easiest to rob and was like suggested, you know, if I were going to rob a bank, it'd be this bank. And boy, the the money in that bank, it's really, it should be yours. It's not those people's. It should be yours. Like you would prosecute that person and you would have no question about whether to prosecute that person. So I, I that's my problem with the hesitancy here. It's like, we need to get our head out of the context of these norms because they're falling all around us. And I think that those norms are unfortunately reinforced all around us in this idea of American exceptionalism that has been promoted and encouraged for at least my entire lifetime. And I'm sure for both of yours as well. And our inability to look outside of ourselves, I think is quite detrimental, particularly when we see our nation taking a well-charted path, just a new one here and that there is all of those warning signs readily available and yet we have a we have a population that is i would say like uniquely disposed to not look at those warning signs yeah don't look up <laughs> yeah Ravi, I see you're wearing your Athletic Greens threads. Yeah, today. and uh, the owner of this coffee shop I go to has like a popular wellness and fitness podcast, and he noticed my sweatshirt and was like, "Oh man, you too!" And it was like kind of like this moment where like Athletic Greens is like Nike, you know? It's like it's the endorsement you want because you don't want to have to use any other shoes. Uh, so I used to take, I tried a bunch of different multivitamins, and. Okay, here's how this is. This gonna be a little bit too much information, but anybody who's ever taken a multivitamin, I'm sorry you pee and it's just bright yellow when you use athletic grant. I'm just telling you my personal, this is my personal experience. I've conducted this experiment myself, regular pee. So that's how I know that this stuff is being absorbed, just like Athletic Green says it is. Well, right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com majority. Again, it's athleticgreens.com majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. It's no secret that this is a difficult time of year. Post-holidays, the weather sucks in large parts of the country. Sun doesn't really come out. And I know that can exacerbate other issues people have going on. I'm definitely seeing it around me. And that's why I love BetterHelp. You know, it's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. And you could send a message to your counselor anytime. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you could schedule weekly video or phone sessions. Yeah, with BetterHelp, uh, you can get matched with your own licensed professional therapist and start communicating within 48 hours. It's more affordable than traditional counseling and financial aid is available. Find the particular expertise that you need online. Don't limit yourself 
yourself to the counselors that are located near you. That's what BetterHelp is for. We want you to start living a happier life today. And as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com m54. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash m54. On a lighter note, but still depressing, Republican congressman from Texas, Dan Crenshaw, uh, he called out members of the sort of what he views as the fringe, right? Like the Marjorie Taylor Greens uh, a few weeks ago. And he said, I've been in Congress for almost three years now. There are two types of members of Congress. There's performance artists and there's legislators. Well, kudos Dan Crenshaw for pointing that out. Very shortly after that, he released a video, a trailer, and this is, I think, the second installment. This is Texas Reloaded 2. I think we played Texas Reloaded 1 at some point on this podcast. Essentially, it's like an action movie-style campaign ad where basically he's the superhero along with other Republicans against the sort of, you know, illiberal left or whatever. Um, And uh, it's notable that he used performance artists uh, in calling out the Marjorie Taylor Greens and then released this ad. There's no profound point here, but I just felt like it'd be fun to talk about. I have two things to say about this. The first is I think that this is proof that we need to fund the arts more in our public schools. Uh, (laughs) I think that if everyone was given more ready, available outlets to self-express, to create, to explore, we might have fewer Dan Crenshaws out there. That being said, I also think that we live in a celebrity-obsessed culture to the point of truly no end. And it is not surprising that what has been coined as Hollywood for ugly people is getting more and more Hollywood. And, you know, I think- And ugly. And and in many ways uglier. And so to me, this is not at all surprising. And I think that, you know, campaign ads will probably evolve to be more like movie trailers and that maybe Dan Crenshaw is kind of just on the cutting edge of this, which is absolutely upsetting. But I think- shouldn't necessarily be just dismissed. I think that this kind of performativity is the direction that we're going. I think first, like a lot of politicians want to be be movie stars. That's how they become politics. You know, I mean, like that's true of a lot of things. Like, And then the movie stars want to be politicians. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's like, look, it's it, that's part of it. But yeah. But, but then the other piece here is that I, I'm just trying to figure out, like, what do I think? about members of Congress who will who will actually stand up and say, hey, that's not okay about the Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Madison Cawthorns of the world, which the leader of the Republicans in the House, McCarthy, won't do, um, but won't stand up and say like, hey, we know who won and this is awful what you're doing and Liz Cheney is right. And I'm just trying to decide like, do I have any credit left over to give to a Dan Crenshaw? I mean, like, yeah, like the hypocrisy is obvious. Like he wants to call people show horses, but like he's one of the only members that's been on Saturday Night Live. He's, you know, he's, he makes these movie trailers. Like, but like, do I have any room to talk? Like when I was getting ready to run for president and push and let America vote, like I recorded an entire ad with the entire cast of the West Wing. So like, and, and that was a blast and I had a really fun time doing it and I was really proud that I was able to do that. So like, I feel like it's hypocritical of me to judge him for that. But I think where he settles in for me is like, I'm just trying to figure out if I have any use whatsoever for Republicans who won't do the full Liz Cheney. And I'm leaning, uh, you know, Republican politicians, that is. And I'm leaning toward I don't have any use for them. Because at the end of the day, what we're talking about is, is the democracy going to continue or not? And, 
you know, just saying Marjorie Taylor Greene is not a serious person, but not saying like we know who won the election. Mm, I don't think I have any use for you. Yeah. And I think your your metaphor about like how much credit you have to dole out. You know, we have inflation going on in this country in our financial system, but I think we have deflation going on in the GOP caucus when it comes to uh you know, courage credits. So I think there's such a lack of courage on the right that each little moment of courage uh, has such value in the public discourse, I think, for pundits because they're like, whoa, like here's like, you know, Liz Cheney is coming and I would not put her and him in the same bucket. What it takes for her to do what she does and for him to do what he does is very different. But these things are so, it's such short supply that they, they seem to be like so valuable to us. You know, and courage is a funny thing. Courage is a funny thing because here's a guy who, if you look at his combat record, there is no doubt the physical courage that this guy had and the moral courage that he had to go out and do what he did for the country. Like th- there shouldn't be any doubt about it. And and what he's and there isn't about you know what he sacrificed for the country. But courage is a fickle thing, man. Like it doesn't arrive in every single context. And and you right. can't somebody who is willing to be the first one in the door in a house in Iraq or Afghanistan. Uh, you know, in a four-man stack and say, I'll, I'll go first. It's amazing how that sometimes just doesn't transfer to, you know, I'll go out and I'll say something that's unpopular. Um, it's it's fascinating. Sometimes it transfers perfectly. And sometimes it's just like they don't exist in the same universe. And I don't really understand why that is. All right. Well, I don't know. Let's say something nice. What's going on nice in the world? I'm going to add a new segment on the fly. Positive <laughs> stuff. Let's do some positive stuff. I can't leave our audience like this. This is a this is a hellscape uh, on January sixth, which I know people are going to be down anyway on January sixth. Let's search inside of ourselves to think of something that we're optimistic about in twenty twenty two. And I'm and audience, I'm doing this on the spot. There was no preparation for this, but I just I feel emotionally like we can't leave you like this. Uh, I'll I'll give you something, which is there seems to be a renewed effort to force a change of the filibuster rules. And that they're like, from what I'm seeing, the whole like it's over thing is over, and there's a there's a renewed push uh, to come uh, with different ideas and proposals to Mansion and Cinema and say like, hey, we we got to do this some way or another. We got to get voting rights passed. Well, I've got one, which is there's like definitely a you know a story arc, which is really bad, but I want to posit a different story arc of where we are right now, which is. You know, in any good movie, there's got to be the second act. And it's possible we're in the second act of the Biden presidency right now where, and Democrats generally, where, you know, it's kind of the low point, the major obstacle. Uh, But there are trends that we can think about to say, all right, we've got a shot here if we just focus and do the right thing. The economy is actually doing quite well. You know, we're adding jobs, unemployment's going down. And in many ways, the, the, the pathologies of the economy, like inflation, the great resignation, things like that are a byproduct of actually a booming economy. So if we could get our, our and, and actually there was data that was just released that poor people added to their wealth at greater numbers in, in almost t- in any time in recent memory. And that was something we predicted on this podcast, but others had predicted because of the child tax credit and other things. So they're actually really important positive things happening. And so you could imagine a world where COVID wanes, or at least we get we get past a lot of this and the economy continues to do well. Republicans kind of run out of bullets in terms of just the amount of different theories they could posit as to why Biden is wrong. They kill each other in their own primaries and act foolish. 
and we may be able to limit the damage in the next election and, and emerge differently coming into the reelect, which is in a sense kind of what happened with Obama, you know, when he came to his reelect. So we're we're we've got some daylight here. I truly believe that. And and Grace, rather than ask you to come up with a with a thing to make us all feel better, put your producer hat back on, which I'm sure you've had on the entire episode, and tell everybody about what is starting on the show next week. And I think that this honestly does give me a lot of hope and excitement for the year. So it, it's appropriate for the segment regardless. But next week, we're going to be back with a, a kind of a, a fresher look, a new approach to an election year. We're going to be talking about how we're going to be handling the midterms and how we are going to ideally be able to help us navigate that in a more positive and actionable way. And so I'm glad that we had a good dialogue about the fate of democracy today. And next week, we're getting back to work. All right. For grabbing ore, I will say, you know, look up your secretary of state and local election authority and, and particularly like who it is and when they're up. And and I'm going to emphasize your local election authority. So like it may be your county recorder. It may be your county clerk. It may be your county auditor. It's it's different positions in different places, but you should know who they are. And if it's not your local one, you should know about the county next to you because those are going to be the front lines of, of this fight. And the reason that you should do it, not just because it's the front lines, is because you can so have an effect. Do you know how few people show up to volunteer on a county clerk's race? Like if you show up and you're like, I want to help you get reelected or I want to help you, you know, get this other person out. They're going to be like, awesome. No one's ever said that to me. It's a county clerk's race. Uh, So go out and do that um, because you can make a huge difference in that race. And uh, that's how we're going to save democracy. Uh, we got a lot of great voicemails in response to our holiday episodes with uh, Megan, Liz, and, and Ethan. Uh, and so, you know, thank you for those. Uh, feel free to leave us others. If there's things where you're like, maybe you have something optimistic that you want to throw out that we could we could play, or maybe there's something we didn't talk about that makes you sad and pessimistic that you'd like us to address. Whatever it is. Uh, we are here for you. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Grace, are you still scared about, or that was Edie who was scared of having people know her social. You're not. I, I'm at Grace Lynch 8 on Twitter. Uh, the show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kinder. Majority 55 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced. What's up? <laughs> you said Majority, you 55. It majority 55. Oh, did I? Yeah. All right. Before you go, I want to tell you about another podcast that I am sure you're going to like. Let's be candid. We know there's no such thing as, quote, having it all. But that doesn't mean that we don't look at some women's lives and think, wow, how do they do it? Tune in to The Growth League, a new podcast from Wonder Media Network, for a behind-the-scenes look into the lives of remarkable corporate executives. Each week, host and New York Times bestselling author Diana Kander, who I happen to know very well because... I'm married to her, sits down with a different successful woman to uncover their habits, tactics, and rules for growth. We learn that doing it all doesn't mean doing it alone and unpack how we can apply these practices to our own lives. Just as an aside, I've been there for this entire process as she's been interviewing these people and recreating these episodes and like, this is really good and you should listen. So listen and subscribe to The Growth League wherever you get your podcasts. Hi listeners, it's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, 
we're on the cusp of a better world. For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.